where we are. We're going through Revelation, and um, it's been really heavy at times, and then lightened up a little bit, and then got heavy again, and lightened up, and today is kind of swinging back down into some heavy land. Not not necessarily heavy in the sense of scary, heavy more in the sense of a little difficult to swallow, I guess. And I'll show you what I mean. Just quick back up. We read Revelation 20 last week, and we were talking about the the kingdom, millennial kingdom, and we talked about the resurrections and the judgment and the place of the dead. Just real quick again on the place of the dead thing. We talked about Hades and paradise and that. And it's not necessarily, again, in the middle of the earth, you know, or in outer space necessarily. Nobody, no, no, no idea where it is. God doesn't tell us where it is. Some think it literally is there in the middle of the earth. But we know that wherever it is, it is a literal place. Some think, and I'm going to get real weird here, but I don't really care. Some think that it is a different dimension. And if you think I'm talking about science fiction, hold on a minute, because dimensions are real. That's why we have 3D movies. You don't ever think somebody says dimensions and you think they're all crazy, but then if there's a 3D movie, you don't have any problem with that. What a 3D movie is a third dimensional dimension movie. It means it has depth because it's in the third dimension. We exist in a fourth dimension. What that means is that we, have, we see things, we exist in a place where there's depth, but we also know that we're in time and space. Okay, This piece of paper... And anything that I write on it is one-dimensional. It's just a flat piece of paper. It has no depth to it or anything. Just a flat piece of paper. Um, but we exist in a place where this chair has depth. I can touch it. If I, even if I don't touch it, I can look at it and tell that there's depth to it. I can tell there's distance between me and you. you know. And I know that time is passing me by. And so that would be a fourth dimensional existence. So if there are one, two, three, four dimensions of existence, the argument is that there is a fifth dimension and who knows how many others. Now, we know this is potentially true without getting crazy as well because we believe in angels. How come you don't see them? Why don't you see them? Are they not here? We say they are. We say there's angels all around us. We just can't see them. Well, what you're saying is that they are in another in a sense, dimension. And I'm not trying to sound like Star Trek here. Science fiction has taken some reality and turned it into fantasy. But it is reality. So there is the argument that perhaps... I'm not fighting biblical language here. I'm just sharing thoughts. Okay? There's the thought that perhaps wherever the place of the dead is, it is another existence. And one of the... what This is just interesting. Hear me say this. If you're listening to the podcast, hear me say this. This is just conjecture so to speak people's thoughts people that are that are really respected names that feel this way but like hebrews 12 where it says we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses what does that mean is that figuratively representing uh this list of the hall of faith that he just went down in chapter 11 of hebrews or are they saying that we are actually surrounded by those who might be able to observe how we're running the race. Does that make any sense? I'm not saying it's easy to swallow. I'm just saying. So some say that. Now, I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is, and I'm not saying I disagree or agree. I'm not really sure. But what I am sure of is that there is a place of the dead 
Okay? And I don't think it's the middle of the earth. I don't think that. I know that that death and that Hades and hell will give up the bodies in Revelation 20. We talked about it already. And they'll face judgment. Look at verse 10 of Revelation 20. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet already were, and they were tormented day and night forever. We talked about this last week a little bit, and we've talked about it in previous... You can go back and listen to the podcast. Verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of the life, book of life, he also was thrown into the same lake of fire. So without spending a whole lot more time on this again, just to point it out, hell is, in essence, hell is the lake of fire, not Hades. When we think of hell, we're referring to this place, lake of fire. It is eternal. I don't care what anybody says. That says forever and ever. Matthew chapter 25, the last verse, you don't have to turn to it, the last verse is the best one to remember. Anytime somebody says hell's not eternal, there's a lot of religions that believe that. It can't be true because the last verse of Matthew 25, if nothing else, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. And Jesus says, the sheep go into eternal life with him and the goats go into eternal punishment. It's in the same sentence, same author, same person speaking who happens to be God, same book. So you can't say eternal life is eternal. Hey, my eternal life is forever. Oh, but eternal hell, that's not forever. Can't do that. If one is, if one is forever, the other is forever. They're in the same sentence. So that's, that's there. Jesus said it's better that your hand were cut off than you go into hell. He even said it was better if Judas was never born. Jesus said that. Now, we can wrestle about that all day, but what he's trying to get at is that this place is real, and it is forever, and... I think it was Adrian Rogers. I've heard a few people say it, but Adrian Rogers, I think I already told you guys, said if the lake of fire forever and ever, if it's figurative, if it's not literal, if it's just figurative, then whatever it's symbolic of is way worse. Because symbolism was always to try to get you to rationalize something that was much bigger than you could possibly fathom. So if that's the terminology they use to describe it and it's not literal, that means it's way worse, not better. Way worse, okay? So some, and I'm more in this camp, lean to the idea that it is to be in the presence of God, not the absence of God, because God is omnipresent. There's nowhere that God is not, right? We say that. God is omnipresent, then that means he's always present. But we want to say hell is to be away from God. It doesn't mean away in the sense that God's not there. It means away in the sense of God is far from you, except for those things in God that hate sin. Imagine a holy God described as an all-consuming fire. And that fire and wrath at sin. And you and me, we're all eternal beings. You have an eternal soul. We all do. So imagine your eternal soul trapped in sin. You'll never get out of it. Now you have an option in your life to get out of it by being covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. But at that point in time, you, that's the done deal. You can't do that anymore. So now you are trapped in your sin in the presence of an all-consuming fire, and you cannot die. I would say that's a pretty good description of a lake of fire. Anyway, Matthew 25, Joel 3, both talk about this judgment. It's at the beginning of the thousand years. The reason that it's at the beginning of this thousand years is because we're told that there's no resurrection at that point in time. 
These people that are judged in Matthew chapter 25, the sheep and the goats, and those that Joel chapter 3 talks about when he gathers the nations to judge them, they're not resurrected. They're living people. Which means it's at his second coming, before the thousand years, he judges the people that are still living on the earth. Now, the white throne judgment that's at the end of chapter 20 there, that is the dead. Because he says he raises the dead. There's a resurrection described. And those people are judged. So, and this is a review. So if this is going quick, go listen to last week. We talked about most of this. But all that to say, going into this thousand-year kingdom, this millennial kingdom of Christ, only the righteous are going to go into that kingdom. Now, Dave, how did you figure that out? Well, the bride of Christ, that's the church, that's us. We're already declared righteous. Christ died for us came back to get us, and now we are alongside with him at this point in time. We've already talked about that. So we're, bride, the church is already righteous. Old Testament saints that are resurrected, they're declared righteous because Hebrews 11 tells us that they were all, everything was counted righteousness to them. They were declared righteous, and they're called a friend of the bridegroom. That's what John the Baptist called himself, not the bride. He said, I'm a friend of the bridegroom because he was before the church. The tribulation people, the people who die during the tribulation that believe in Jesus, that believe in God, they're declared righteous by their deeds. And I'm not saying their deeds made them righteous. Their deeds was evidence that they believed in Jesus because it cost them their lives. They're martyred for it. All the Israelites that are living at the time that Jesus comes back to the earth, they believe in him. All of them do. That's what Romans 11 talks about. They will all call on him. They will all believe in him. We've already talked about this a lot. And Jesus refers to them again in Matthew 25. He talks about the, when he's talking about separating the sheep from the goats. And he says, these my brothers. So they're there too at this moment. But they're already, they've already believed in him. He's come for them. The sheep are the living Gentiles that have stood by. So these are the ones that we would call a tribulation saint, except they didn't die. So they've stood by, they're still alive when Jesus comes back, and they've stood by the Jews. And they've stood by faith in Jesus. So when he comes, now he's got them in front of him, they're still alive. There's only one other group of people left that I haven't described. Who is that? It's all the living Gentiles that don't believe in him. So if all of the Jews that are alive are standing with him at the time, and that leaves all the Gentiles on the other side, and the church is out because we're with him, and the tribulation, those who died during the tribulation are out, so he's raised them out. The Old Testament saints that were dead, they're out. So that only leaves these Gentiles that are living. And that's where Matthew 25 says he separates the sheep from the goats. He pulls out the ones that, he separates the ones that belong to him, and the others, he casts into eternal destruction, it says, or cast them towards eternal destruction. So, if that's the case, then that only leaves righteous people to go into the kingdom. So, as he starts the kingdom, you have nothing left but righteous people. Now, if you think that's crazy, let's remember something. What happened after the flood? How many mass murderers came off the ark? None. Everybody that came off that ark was declared righteous. That's why they were saved. Were they 
perfect and sinless? No, but they were righteous. So when the, when the earth started over after the flood, that's exactly the way it was. Nobody came into the new world after the flood except Noah's righteous family. That's why he carried him in the ark. And did they believe in God at that point? I dare say so. Okay, so same idea. Only the righteous are going to enter this time. But just like with the flood... You still have living human beings on the planet. And they're born into what condition? Sin. They're still born into sin. So they still have sin within them. Just like even though God wiped out the whole earth by a flood and started over with just those eight people. The sin still caught right back in, didn't it? Quick. Okay? Real quick. It's the same idea. You may say, well, but Jesus is there. Where did the first sin occur? Where? The Garden of Eden. In the most perfect conditions there are, and God had walked with Adam and Eve. So let's not assume that just because you say, well, Jesus is there, how can there be sin? He was there in the garden and there was sin. All right? There's a point to it all, though. Hold on. We're going to look at a lot of verses over the next two two weeks, this week and next week, um, and we'll transition into the next chapter by next week, but... I'm going to give you guys mountains of Scripture, which comes as no surprise, I'm sure. But uh, just telling you that ahead of time, this is way bigger than Revelation 20. This is, I mean, we're going to look a lot at Isaiah, a lot at Jeremiah today. Remember this, too, as we go into this. We talked about this way back in the beginning. There's five Jewish covenants. Okay, five. There was, and this, nobody disputes this. I don't care what side of the map you're on. There's five Jewish covenants. There was the covenant with Abraham that promised a people and a place. There was the land covenant that promised that place in detail. Gave out what that place was going to look like, how big it was going to be, where it was going to be, and it was promised to them. There is the Mosaic covenant which said, if you keep my laws, you can stay on that piece of land. Okay? There was the... Davidic covenant or the David covenant that said you'll always have a what? King for that land and for, my, for your people. And then there was one more covenant. Which one is it? The one you're in. New covenant. Okay? That I will put my laws on your hearts and I will seal you. All right? The only one of those covenants that's conditional on behavior or on Mankind's behavior was the Mosaic Covenant. That's it. The rest of them were unconditional. That's the only one that had an if clause stuck on it. The only one. The rest of them were all unconditional, which means they all have to be fulfilled, which is exactly what we're reading about right now in chapter 20. Is Jesus the King returning and fulfilling all of these Jewish covenant promises that he promised unconditionally to them? You're going to have a new law even. What's called a kingdom law. You'll see that in a minute. Really what it is is a return towards Eden. Okay? And you're going to see that from here to chapter 22. The next three chapters you're going to see it clear as day. It's nuts. You can literally start in Genesis chapter 1 or chapter 2 really. But the end of chapter 1 and Revelation 22 and read read them towards each other if that makes sense. And they, they follow each other almost eerily similar. So the finish is the, exactly the way it starts. All right? You're going to see a desert from the fall that becomes life again. You're going to see that. 
You're going to see the ground producing for people. They don't have to claw at the ground that, that was where the curse from Adam came. They don't have to claw at the ground for food anymore. You're going to see life that comes out of the temple, out of the place where God is, just like the garden. Life came out of the garden. You're going to have a boundary described of this place, this future place on earth. Ezekiel 47 talks about it. Just like there was one in Eden and just like there's a boundaries that were told to Abraham in the land covenant, there's boundaries. You're going to see boundaries described again. You're going to see a river flow out from the temple and divide out and, and bring, make the land fertile again. Just like in, in Genesis chapter 2, there was one river that surrounded and fed the whole garden. It is the same thing. You're going to see it happen again. So go to Isaiah 65, and I'm going to camp in Isaiah today for the most part. Uh, and, and we're going to remember, we've been approaching this topically. I read through all of Revelation 20, and we've been looking at it topically. So last week, we are looking at judgment and fire and hell and place of the dead and all that stuff nobody wants to talk about. Today, look more at what life looks like when he returns. And remember, if you think he's just coming one more time, and then it's heaven. That's it. Then it's heaven. Then you're going to have to explain what all of these things are and what all these things we're going to look, like, look at mean. He's obviously got some plan for some time here on earth that either has been erased changed his mind without telling anybody or it's all just figurative of something and then you're going to have to explain what everything's figurative of so look at chapter 65 of Isaiah verse 17 behold I create new heavens and a new earth now this is not the same new heaven and new earth that we're going to get to in Revelation this is more of a renewed literally this is what it says in Hebrew behold me creating heaven new And land new. The idea is a new. Renewing. And you're going to see why I'm saying that in just a minute. Former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. All it says is they won't be mentioned. It doesn't mean they're going to be forgotten. It just means people aren't talking about that anymore. Verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. Notice Jerusalem to hold that thought. Keep that one in your mind. And her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. That's a place. And be glad in my people. And no more shall be heard, underline it, circle it, square it, in it, the sound of weeping. In what? Where's the it that he's talking about? What did he just say in the sentence before? Jerusalem. That's very important. It doesn't say in the whole wide world will there be. He didn't say that. He says, in the Jerusalem that he's creating, this is what he's talking about. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives only a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And literally the way this is worded is it's saying death is coming to the rebellious. And that they'll die young. And by young, it's at 100 years, roughly. It's the idea that to die young would be only to live 100 years. Again, just like the garden. You remember how long Adam lived? Go back and look it up. 969 years, I think, 900 and something. So to die at 100 would be real young. You know what I mean? So he's talking about those. And furthermore, this also proves that we're not talking about the new heaven, new earth in Revelation. We're not talking about heaven. Because clearly there's what? Death. 
there's still death. Where did death come from? Where? Sin. The wages of sin is death. So that means wherever this is, clearly sin still exists. Verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. In other words, nobody's going to steal their stuff. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. How long does a tree live? Uh, And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. In other words, work is going to be there just like it was in the garden. But unlike the fall, the garden's going to produce what they wanted to. And it's going to be easy work. It's going to be joyous work. And he's saying my chosen will enjoy those things. Which means there's also going to begin to be something going on outside that realm. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring and the blessing of the Lord. And their descendants with them. Which means they're going to have what? Children. Now, if this is heaven, we got another problem too. Because Jesus said, plain as day, when asked this very question... What happens as far as marriage goes in heaven? Jesus said what? Do you remember? They're neither given in marriage or or otherwise. They're like the angels. Doesn't mean you're going to be an angel. It means you're going to be like an angel in answer to that question. Which means you're not going to reproduce. That's not what your purpose anymore. Not going to be my purpose anymore. But there will be living people on earth when Jesus returns. And those people can reproduce. In fact, they will. Especially if they live to be 100 years old. And that being young. So the idea is they're going to reproduce. Now we'll be part of this. We'll get to that. But we'll play a different role. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. What does that mean? What does he mean by that? Yeah, he's going to talk to them. But what does it mean that even before they get it out of their mouth, I'm going to hear it? He's there. He's close. Real close. That means the reason it's going to be that way is he's there. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The the lion shall eat straw like an ox. What does that mean? New nature. Lions don't eat straw. Do you know if you put a lion in a cage with straw, a mountain of straw, it'll starve to death because it will not eat that. But it could live off that straw. Do you know that? You think a lion has to have meat to live. That's not true. Just like, unfortunately... And I'm not advocating vegetarianism because I love meat. But you could live without eating meat. You could. You could find nutrients in other ways. Adam did. But it's become our nature to eat meat. And like a lion, it's their nature to eat meat. But they could live without it. So that, in essence, what I'm getting at is that lion will die even though the nutrients to survive is right in front of it because of its nature. Well, it's just like us. The animal kingdom will have a new nature. The wolf and the lamb will lie together. It's not just talking about peace on earth. It's talking about new nature to all of creation. Lambs and wolves do not lie together. It's not about peace. It's about their very nature changing. Dust shall be the serpent's food. The serpent's not going to eat animals that run around on the ground. They shall not hurt or destroy where? What does it say? What does it say? I stopped reading. In all my holy mountain, which we know to be... Jerusalem. We've already talked about it. We'll talk about it again. So, not the whole world here. Now, everybody that goes into this kingdom goes into it in a righteous state. But, on his mountain, that's where it's promised that this is the way it's going to be. Fruchtenbaum says this, and I'm going to use him a lot over the next two weeks because he just does a good job of explaining it. I'm not necessarily advocating every word he says, 
I'm, I wrestle with some of it, tell you the truth. Um, it's, but I, I'm trying to decide, do I wrestle with it because I don't believe it, or do I wrestle with it because I think it's wild? I don't know. But I think he does a good job of explaining it, and so I'm using him. Most of these other guys agree with him. I haven't really seen any of the others, whether I'm talking about MacArthur or Adrian Rogers or any of them disagree, but he just says it well. So here's one of the things he says. He says, when the kingdom begins, all natural, that means living, men and women, both Jews and Gentiles, will be believers. Everybody will be at that point. However, in the process of time, there will be births in the kingdom of both Jews and Gentiles. These newly born Natural people will continue to inherit the sin nature from their natural parents and will also be in need of regeneration or new life. Although Satan is confined, we read that, he's been chained and put in the abyss, thus reducing temptation, the sin nature is quite capable of rebelling against God apart from satanic activity. In time, there will be unsaved people living in the kingdom in need of regeneration or new life or being born again, that's what the word means. As in the past, the means of salvation will be by grace, through faith. The context of faith will be the past death of the Messiah, just like for us. It's the past death of the Messiah for sin and his resurrection. Those born in the kingdom, if they do not believe, they will die young. Not able to live past the first century of life. However, if they do believe... They will live throughout the millennium and never die. So he says that you will, at those who are alive at the time will live throughout the whole time by faith. Thus, death in the millennium will be for the unbelievers only. This is why the Bible nowhere speaks of a resurrection of millennial saints. So what he's saying is there's no future resurrection at the end of this where saints are resurrected. So what he's saying is nobody during this period of time who has faith in the Lord is going to experience death. So he says, just like we believe in a rapture now, if Christ were to show up right now, you wouldn't be experiencing death. You would be with him. Okay? Same idea is he's there. So if your faith is in him, you don't experience death. Whenever the end of this thousand years is up and things change, which we'll get to that, things change, you just translate into that just like we would as being raptured. Okay. Isaiah, you're still there. Go to chapter 60. Back up a few pages. Just... A couple of verses. I'm going to speed through some Isaiah things here. I'm just reading verses. I'm not trying to dig deep. So read what they say. Arise, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you or among you. Same idea. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. So that means there's something that's going, going to be going on. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Go back to Isaiah chapter 2. While you're going there, just let me read one verse. Zephaniah, you can make a note if you're writing verses down. Zephaniah 3.20 says, At that time I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. That hasn't happened yet, I promise you. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. There's never been a time that the Jews have been seen as renowned by all nations on the earth. They've always been accursed by all nations of the earth, except for maybe America, and even that's changing now. 
Isaiah chapter 2, we've read before, it's just like Micah chapter 4. So if you're making notes, you can write out there, Micah 4 is almost a direct quote of the same exact thing. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. So we're talking about as change in the landscape of the world. We talked about all of that. This is no big deal if you've read any of what's supposed to occur during this tribulation time. Massive earthquakes, massive floods. You're talking about meteor type things coming out of the sky. All these things that we've read and happened, why is it a big deal to think that this mountain would arise? You look at these volcanoes erupting. How do you think a volcano comes to be? You know, it's the same idea. It's going to arise. We talked about all that already. But anyway, point being that this is the place that Isaiah was talking about later where there's going to be peace on this mountain. He says, and many people shall come to it in verse 3 and say, come, let us go to the mountain of Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, which means he's going to be there, and that we may walk in his paths. Watch this. For out of Zion shall go what? The law. Don't miss that. That's talking about the future. Out of Zion shall go the law. So there will be a law. I'll show it to you when we get there. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So God is going to be there and he's going to have a law of the land. And it's going to go out. Now that sounds automatically everybody's already twisted. I thought there's no law. I thought we're set free from the law. No, he, he never. What did he say he was going to do in a new covenant? They say he was going to break the law and just toss the whole law out the window. He said he was going to do something. What? Write it on your heart. Write it on your heart. Therefore, when you break that law, it breaks your heart. But there's going to come a day when you're no longer going to have to worry about breaking that law because it's going to be a joy for you to live in that law because you got it written in your heart. But the people in the land... That's not so. The ones who have lived through this time and are having children. So he says, goes on and he says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes. Well, if there's judging and disputes going on, clearly this is not heaven. But it goes on to say the other part of the verse that we love to quote. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. So there won't be any more war. But there'll still be disputes. Go to chapter 35. Flip back the same Isaiah chapter 35. And there's a lot in the Old Testament and the New. But a lot in the Old Testament that talks about what life will be like then. But particularly Isaiah and Ezekiel have the meat of it. Isaiah 35 verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is cool because Jesus was really setting the bar of what this is going to look like when he was here on earth. Because these are the things he was doing. For waters break forth in the wilderness. Here it is. And the streams in the desert. Remember I said the desert's going to turn back again to life. You don't see streams breaking out in deserts. The burning sand of the desert shall become a pool. 
and the thirsty ground springs of water. You get what's going on here? The land is being healed. This is the reverse of what happened when they came out of the garden. Cursed. The, the haunt, in the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Reeds and rushes grow around water. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. How about Robbie talking about that? The unclean shall not pass over it. Nobody goes this way that's unclean. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Does Robbie again. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. I love that. <laughs> Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. Even if you're simple-minded, he's got you. He's got you. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. That's Jerusalem. That's the hill that he's talking about, the mountain, with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. That's awesome. Go to chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, you know this one. But it's very similar to uh, the one we already read. Isaiah chapter 11, look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell there with the lamb. We read that already. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them, which is tying now humanity into this. That even a child will lead them. What was Adam supposed to do besides populate the earth? Take care of the creation. Take care of the animals. Take care, name the animals, all that stuff. And now we've reached a point in the garden type in that future where the animals, listen, even a little kid, because he's a child of Adam. That's one cool thing about C.S. Lewis, by the way, the Chronicles of Narnia. I love how... Mankind is referred to as sons of Adam in that story. That's the idea. That the animal world is knows. Hey, this is the son of Adam, man. We're, we do what he says. It doesn't matter how old or little she or he is. So it says, the, uh, the cow and the bear shall graze and their young shall lie down together. And the lion eats straw like an ox. We talked about that already, a new nature. And here's the one for Mark Gouge, our children's director. He's real excited about this one. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder or viper. Viper's den. I mean... <laughs> Gooch said, yep, and have heart attack immediately. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he hates snakes, mortified of snakes. But that's what it says. Think about this. A nursing kid able to play on the hole of a cobra. I know, you know. They shall not hurt or destroy where? And all my holy mountain. Again, not the whole world. He's talking about this mountain. Now, now, the world is at a state of renewal and a state of peace and a state of righteousness initially. But no matter what, this is the condition that his mountain will be like. For the earth shall be full, here it is, the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. So the knowledge of God is going to be around the whole world. Everybody's going to know who he is. But the conditions in his mountain are going to be different. Go to Isaiah 55. Jump back forward again. 
Isaiah 55, and then we'll leave Isaiah for a little bit. Isaiah 55, go to verse 12. It says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. This sounds like a Disney movie. The mountains are going to sing. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily literally. And all the trees in the fields shall clap their hands. What does that mean? The land, again, even the land itself is celebrating. This is the fulfillment of what was spoken, what, what spoke I think it's Revel, or Romans chapter 8, where Paul talks about all of creation is longing for the revealing of the sons of man. When, when we're renewed, everything is renewed. And he's saying that the animals are right and that man is right and that the trees and the ground are even celebrating. In verse 13, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, shade trees, you know. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. That's awesome. Go to Zechariah now, chapter 8. Jump on over towards the end of the Bible. Zechariah chapter 8. While you're going there, you already know this. You can just listen to me, make a note if you want. But Jeremiah 31 34, Jeremiah 31 is where the new covenant is. It's in Ezekiel 36 as well, but it's in Jeremiah 31. And when he talks about a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, in verse 34, he says, and in in the day when all Israel is saved under this covenant, he says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother. I think neighbor is referring to Gentiles and brothers referring to Jews here, but either way, saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Look at Zechariah 8, verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. So that means there's going to be cities built again. Which why wouldn't there be if there's still people on the earth? Verse 21. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, Hey, let's, let us at once entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. Hey, I'm going. I love the way that's worded. It's like saying, Hey, I'm going to the Lord, going to see the Lord, man. You should come. Hey, we're starting a train. We're all boarding the train. We're all heading to see the Lord. Where's the Lord? Jerusalem, on his mountain. Look what he says, verse 22. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts. Where? In Jerusalem, it tells you. And to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days. What days? Those days. Whenever they are. Ten men, watch, from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That hadn't happened yet either, but it's going to. So, sin. That's life in the millennium. But at the same time, what's with the sin thing and how does that all work and where does that all come from? Go back to Revelation chapter 20. And you can let go of Isaiah. Go back to Revelation chapter 20 and let me show you something. Um, Chapter 20. We already read this, but verse 7 says, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, and ultimately be judged. 1 Corinthians 15, 
you don't have to turn to it, 24 says this. Listen, make a note. You've got to have this note. Listen, just one verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Okay? The end comes when Jesus presents the kingdom to the Father, having destroyed every enemy, whatever. But the, the next verse, verse 25 says, For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Which means there's going to be a period of time where he reigns as he puts them under his feet and then presents it up. So, But during the millennial kingdom, though, look here in Revelation 20, verse 2 this is during this kingdom while he's reigning. Verse 2 says, He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, Satan, bound him for a thousand years. This is the time of his reign. And threw him into the pit, and he shut it and sealed it over him, so that Satan, he may not deceive the nations any longer, till the time was ended when he's released and judged. So, if Satan's not there to deceive the nations, then where does sin come from? And this is where people want to jump in the camp of saying, no, it's got to be something figurative because where would sin come from? James tells us, James tells us exactly where sin comes from. James tells you exactly where sin comes from. You don't have to turn to it. You already know the verse. I'm just going to tell it to you. James 1:14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? You know the verse? Satan? Each person, each person, like it says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Which means there's something in you that desires to sin. Something in you that desires to sin. Then he says, then desire, that desire to sin, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Nowhere in that lineup is Satan. Nowhere. Satan is not responsible for your sin. We give him way too much credit. You know what Satan does? Satan says, hey, you know what? You really like to do this. I know you would. Because he knows inside you is something that desires to throw that chair in the floor. You know? <laughs> Sorry. Something that he knows that there's something in you that desires to sin. So he places before you opportunity. That's all he did to Eve, isn't it? Now, we can talk about that all day because that was original sin. Did Eve have sin? I'm not going there now. But the point being, Satan, all Satan is doing is offering opportunity at the desire that's in you already. So Satan being locked up doesn't mean a thing. If you're born out of, if you're born from Adam, it's in you. Just like it's in me. The only way that I'm getting rid of it is when Jesus, when I die and Jesus transforms this body into a new body. That's it. So if Jesus came back today and, and I was still here as a living human being, I would still be in that condition. He could declare me righteous all day long, but I'd be in that condition. That makes sense. That might be way less likely to sin. Way less likely. But it's still there. Uh, I'm going to read several because I want to give you several commentaries on this because I want you to understand this is not just coming out of my head. 
Okay, Henry Ironside says this. If men sin during the millennium, it will not be on account of having been deceived. It will simply be because of self-will and the yielding to the lust of their own hearts. But we need to remember that the kingdom age is not to be a time of sinlessness. There will be some, even in that blessed time, who will dare to act in defiance of the will of God. For such will, uh, for such will soon be dealt with in judgment at the end of that time period. Such cases will, I take it, be very exceptional. But Scripture makes it plain that there will be offenders, offenses even when God's king reigns on the earth. In the present time of grace, this is awesome, the present where we, where we are now, the present time of grace, he says, those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So he says, right now, righteousness suffers. That's what he says. Then he says, but... In the millennial time, righteousness will reign. Okay? Then he says, and in the eternal state or the time after that, which follows the millennium, righteousness will dwell. It will be at home and every adverse thing will be banished forever. So right now, righteousness suffers at that point in time, which means evil reigns. At that point in time, righteousness reigns, evil suffers. But there's going to come a time where righteousness dwells and there is no evil. That would be what we would call heaven, heaven, ultimately. We'll get to it. It's in Revelation. It's other places, too. Uh, he goes on to say, While Satan is shut up in the abyss, there will be many born into the world whose obedience to the king will only be feigned. The heart will not be in it. And when the devil's loosed for a little season at the end of the millennium, he finds a host of those ready to do his will and to join him in the last great rebellion against all-powerful omnipotence. It is the old story of satanic hatred to God and man's frailty told out again. But this time under the most favorable circumstances so far as man is concerned. Therefore, his sin is absolutely inexcusable. And then he points it out what I said earlier. Tested in the Garden of Eden. Man, this is awesome. Listen to this. Tested in the Garden of Eden. Man broke through the only prohibition laid against him. One thing. Don't eat the fruit. They, bro they broke it. So in the Garden of Eden, tested, they broke through the only one thing laid against them. Tested in the days of Noah, when the conscience is what led you. He says, corrupt and violent filled the earth, and the scene had to be cleared by the flood. Tested under the restraining influence of divinely appointed government, whether you're talking about the patriarchs and the judges, those times. Man went into idolatry, thus turning his back on his creator. Tested under the law when Moses, in the times of Moses, in the law, not just Moses, but the law that lasted all the way to Jesus came. He cast off all restraint and crucified the Lord of glory. Tested under grace. That's the church age that we're in. In this present time of the Holy Spirit, he, mankind, has shown himself utterly unable to appreciate such mercy and has rejected the gospel and gone even deeper into sin. And tested under the personal reign of the Lord Jesus Christ for a thousand years, the millennial reign. Some will be ready to listen to the voice of the tempter when at the close he ascends from the pit of the abyss bent upon one last defiant effort to thwart the purpose of God. This is a melancholy history indeed and emphasizes the truth that the heart of man is incurably evil. Adrian Rogers says, you may ask at this point, won't everyone be saved during the millennium? No. During the golden age, Jesus will rule the nations with the rod of iron. 
But then something will happen. Hearts will turn. But it won't be because Satan will lead a rebellious uprising. In the human heart, men will commit sin that has not been washed by the precious blood of the Lord. People have children during the millennium. And when they have had children, many of these children will not repent and believe upon Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord. God has, I love this, God has millions of children, but he has no grandchildren. Just because one generation is Christian doesn't automatically mean the next generation will be. Changing environment is not the answer. Many people think if you can change the environment, you can change the nature of man. Do you really believe that? If you do, let me tell you something. It was in the Garden of Eden that man got into trouble in the first place, was it not? Make your environment as good as you can. But even after a thousand years of peace and righteousness, there will always be sin in the human heart. I'll give you a couple more. MacArthur says this. I know I'm reading a lot, but I want you to hear their words. MacArthur says this. Though the initial inhabitants of the millennial kingdom will all be redeemed, they will still possess a sinful human nature. And as all parents have done since the fall, they will pass that sin nature on to their offspring. Each successive generation throughout that thousand years will be made up of sinners in need of salvation. Many will come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in Jerusalem. But amazingly, despite the personal rule of Christ on the earth, despite the most moral society the world will ever know, many others will love their sin and reject him. Even the utopian conditions of the millennium will not change the sad reality of human depravity. As they did during his incarnational presence on the earth, sinners will refuse the grace and reject the lordship of the king of all the earth. It's a great point. If they were rejecting him when he was doing miracles here the first time, what makes you think they won't reject him when he's here doing miracles the next time? Or even better, when there's no need of miracles because everybody's healthy. When Satan is loosed, he will provide the supernatural leadership needed to bring to surface all the sin and rebellion left in the universe. At the end of his thousand-year imprisonment, Satan will come out to deceive the nations and he'll find fertile soil in which to sell his Seeds of rebellion for many unsaved descendants of those who entered the millennial kingdom in their physical bodies will love their sin and reject Christ. They'll be as unmoved by the peace and joy and righteousness of the millennium as earlier sinners were by the devastating judgments of the tribulation. Remember that when the wrath was coming down and all hell was coming down on earth and they cursed God for it. They didn't repent. Instead, they cursed him for it. I'm not going to read this. But Carla Tripp, she's an author that I, I met a few months ago in Atlanta, gave me a book to read, which she'd written, which is unbelievable. It's called Joseph, Jesus, and the Jewish People. It is amazing. And uh, I'll probably reference it a lot because I wish I'd had it sooner. But it does this amazing job of painting Jesus and Joseph together. And I've seen some of it, but she takes it to a whole other level that is unbelievable. But in any event, she makes the point here. I've, I've got a, a lengthy quote from her. I'm not going to read it. But she makes the point that there is a difference in a sense between faith and sight. Remember, Thomas said, show, Jesus, show us the Father and we'll believe. And he said, how, how, how long have I been with you? You say you believe in me, but you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And when Jesus rose from the dead, fulfilling everything that Thomas believed he would do, he still said, I'm not going to believe until I see him. Then when he saw him, he totally believed on the flip side, the demons have seen him all day long. The demons saw him before we did. 
The demons know who he is. They see him and know who he is. What they don't believe is that he is going to do what he says he's going to do. They also said be no war. What we say is that we see him, whether we lay eyes on him or not, we see him, but we also believe in him. We believe he's going to do what he says he's going to do. So in this future time, it's safe to say that there will be people at that point in time. That, well, let me just read the last part of her quote. She says, those that continue in their bodies after Christ returns will have a greater visible advantage than the New Testament church has had. However, they'll be limited by what their eyes can perceive and dependent on faith to discern truths that are not visible. Yes, they'll see Jesus and his glorified saints walking on the earth, but they'll not be able to see into his heart. They won't have his laws written on, on their hearts. Or see other spiritual realities like heaven, except through just faith, just trusting. This is, the, this is who he says he is. It says, in their sense, their experience, especially that of their children, would not have witnessed Jesus' return or, wit, or the experience of the tribulation. It would be like the Dead Sea parting. That was a long time ago. This place is beautiful. What are you talking about? There was blood all over the place. What are you talking about? Fire came out of the sky. What are you talking about? There were dead bodies to the extent that blood rushed as high as the horse's bridle. This place is gorgeous. This place is perfect. What do you mean a lion used to eat a lamb? I don't believe that. You see what I'm saying? So it's going to drift is what you're saying. I agree completely. And I'll give you one last quote, just a paragraph. Fruit Mom says, The Messiah's iron-handed rule is rooted in Psalm 2.9 and will be a necessity due to the fact that nations will exist and people populating them will still have their sin nature. After the first generation, there will be unbelievers present in the kingdom. The natural outworking of this sin nature will have to be restrained. The kingdom will not be a democracy, but an absolute monarchy. The reign of the Messiah King will be a strict one, and the righteous and just laws emanating from Jerusalem will have to be obeyed. So what you have is a picture of a kingdom ruled in such a way that there are rules that are disseminate from the capital, being Jerusalem. So no, I know it may feel foggy, but just hold on. Next week... We'll talk about what those rules are, what it looks like, who, how it works. Talk about the temple. Uh, let me stop there. We're out of time, but we'll pick it back up next week and carry on through that. But the awesome part is for us, we're going to be the bride of Christ. We are going to be there alongside of this. And for us, we have access to that mountain. That's what's going to be awesome. Like you know, I don't, I got no desire to swim with sharks, but I'm cool with putting my hand in a in a adder's den. I'm straight with that, bro. <laughs> I want to like wrestle with a lion too. That'd be killer. You know what I mean? I think that'd be awesome. The simple things. Now I'm simple. See, I'm simple. I don't have to have a mansion. I don't care nothing about all that. You know. <laughs> Let me pray. Lord, I love you. Your word is awesome. And I, you know, I think in here as we're talking, it's amazing to see this detailed a picture. And uh, we're not even using Revelation 20. I mean, your word as a whole tells us the truth. You are are the word. 
And you are the truth. And, and, and as we look at it as a whole, we just see this amazing picture. And Lord, I thank you that you have, you're redeeming all of creation. I thank you that it's bigger than just me. Um, it's bigger than just mankind even. That you would, you would look at everything that you once said, it is good. And you will make it all good again. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being part of it. Thank you so much for saving me. Let it never be said, God, that I take advantage of grace. Let it never be said that I ignore mercy. Lord, even if I can't explain all these other things, I know I'm a sinner, God. I know I am. And I thank you that you've forgiven me. Cast my sins as far as the east is from the west. Remember my sins no more. Have a plan for my life. That, that, that you want me to know, not that I have to discover somewhere, but it was planned before you saved me. Lord, I pray I honor you. I look forward to that day alongside of my brothers and sisters in this room where we can celebrate your kingdom and we can be part of your rule and the responsibilities that you'll have for us even in that time. Your word says so. We already talked about it. Lord, I, I'm excited. I'm so glad that you have a plan that involves us now and later. Thank you for letting us be part of what you do. We love you, Lord. I pray that you would help us be faithful to you this week. Help us live lives set apart this week. Lord, I pray that people would look at us this week and say, yep, something different with those guys. Lord, I love you. And ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.